welcome to the Coach Steve Clark Show, where he will encourage, inspire, and equip coaches, players, and parents who will in turn motivate and help others to promote the great game of tennis, foster sportsmanship, and develop greater players and people. Thanks for joining us, and here's your host, Steve Clark. Hello, everyone. This is Steve Clark, and thanks so much for tuning into the show. As you listen, it will almost be like sitting in the player's box of a Grand Slam event, hearing what's going on in the minds and discussions of the coaches and what they know, what's behind the stats and the tendencies of the players battling on the court. Today I have Craig O'Shaughnessy, the strategy analyst for Wimbledon, the Australian Open, ATP World Tour, the Italian Tennis Federation, and Team Novak Djokovic. Craig has coached tennis at all levels of the game for over 30 years and now specializes in researching and teaching patterns of play that dominate our sport. Craig was the 2015 USPTA Tour Coach of the Year and in 2018 helped guide Novak Djokovic to two Grand Slam titles as he surged back to number one, which was amazing. And uh, what, a, what a feat that was. And Craig lives in Austin, Texas and runs his uh, tennis strategy website. He's the brain behind BrainGameTennis.com. Uh, while regularly conducting speaking presentations um, for players and coaches all over the world. Um, and he, he mainly created the tennis online uh, brain game tennis to teach players and coaches and fans, uh, which is everybody in our audience, uh, that patterns of play and winning percentages that dominate our sport. And because tennis is a game of repeatable patterns and percentages. Uh, and you'll find out that Craig is an expert at bringing them to life. And on this podcast, you will get a glimpse of that skill set. So, Craig, uh, thanks for joining us, and how are you doing down there in sunny Austin? Well, Steve, it's an absolute pleasure to be on your podcast. Thank you very much. It's pouring rain in Austin at the moment. So, um, <laughs> so it's not some, sunny. Some, no, it's, it's not sunny, but, you know, we always need the rain, so there's no drama there. Yeah, good. Well, folks, you're going to be learning a lot, and uh, so am I, um, about the things that Craig presents and we discuss, and... Um, uh, for those listening, if, if you don't get something, chances are I'm, I probably messed something up too, and he'll correct us. But uh, this applies to, it's very practical what we're going to be talking about. Uh, it applies to juniors at, at, you know, if you want to aspire to a certain level, it's going to apply, apply there, collegiate players, and obviously the pro. And, um, you know, for both men and women, and he talks about that in a lot of his uh, presentations. Uh, second thing is you're going to hear a lot of numbers and tendencies, but the big picture, the, the meta narrative will be really clear, and that is most players don't practice according to what wins out there, what's actually happening. In other words, there's description of what's happening, and Craig is offering a prescription. In other words, well, this is what happens, so this is what you should do, and a lot of people don't practice that way. In other words, uh, you know, a lot of times when you walk into a presentation or a discussion, you know, some of the things sound like Greek. Well, he's going to talk about the mode is one or 70% of the points are zero to four shots, C to C tennis, etc. After this, that'll all be clear as day and you'll be able to apply that in your practice. Um, and you might think about even getting out a piece of paper and drawing a tennis court and then kind of putting four quadrants or four lanes in the tennis court uh, in the single surface. Um, and that way you can maybe uh, jot along. And then the last thing I'd suggest for everybody out there is after the podcast is uh, get on to braingametennis.com and subscribe and really start 
learning a lot about what Craig has to say. Well, Craig, let's go ahead and get started. Um, you know, I'll throw out some things, and obviously you can uh, just, uh, without looking at anything, any notes, it's, uh, it's in that brain of yours, is what do we mean by uh, the mode is one? Yeah, so I was doing a presentation, I think it was two years ago, and, he, and I asked the question to the audience. I said, what is the most common rally length in tennis? And it was this very smart, I think it was about 14, a 14-year-old boy sitting in the back of the room, and obviously um, he knew a lot about math, and he goes, well, Craig, that's, that's the mode of what you're doing. So I'm like, okay. So I added that into the presentation. And and that's what the mode means. It's, you know, you have four-shot rallies, you have eight-shot rallies, you have 12-shot rallies, you have 20-shot rallies. Uh, we look at our practice court, and, and we think the, the longer that we bang the ball back and forth, let's start with 100 balls cross court, you know, we, we've always thought how can consistency, you know, be bad and, and the longer rallies. But when you, you look at the mode and you look at the most abundant rally length in our sport – it's a rally length of one shot, and everybody, and I repeat, everybody <laughs> exactly. gets this wrong. wrong yes. Whether it's, uh, whether it's, you know, I asked a question to Novak, or I asked Nick Volatieri, um about a month ago. I was sitting in a room with 20 coaches in, in Dallas, Texas, and, you know, we looked around. It's like I asked these guys. They're all, you know, probably 40 to, to 70 years of age, all the coaches, and I'm like, how many matches have you actually played? All the people in the room, have we played? Have we watched? And have we been a part of coaching with our students? And we're like, you know, just who knows? Hundreds of thousands, hundreds of thousands of matches we've all been involved in. And I asked the question to all of them, and they all got it wrong. So it's something that 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 escapes us. We, we've never we cut our Bought up into so many different sections. We cut it up into a strategy section or a technique section or a fitness section. And then we, we go and play and, and we, we fail to, to put any, you know, um, understanding into, well, that was a two-shot rally and that was an eight-shot rally and that was a one-shot rally and that was an 11-shot rally. We've never added them up to figure out what's going on. And now that we know that the mode is one and it's about 30% of our sport, is a rally length of one shot. When we start with the serve, which is a very difficult shot, difficult to get back, then the return, which is missed a lot, um, and then you get into the, the regular ground strokes, um, you know, uh, the start of the point is very different to things that happen on the practice court where we're just rallying back and forth. So there's, there's certainly not enough work done in the initial stage of, of, of building the point, which is the serve return and the two shots for pause. So plus one and return plus one. Folks, uh, so I asked uh, the mode equals one, and that's that opens up a whole can of worms. And this is uh, this is where, uh, for example, the practical implications are going to come out all of this. And um, you know, and I, I'll ask, like Craig said, I'll ask people all the time, uh, "What do you think about this?" This, and they said, "Well, you know, this is how we practice, et cetera." And, and and it's interesting because over the years, you know, I've been coaching for about you know collegiately for about thirty years, and you know, my focus has always been serve, serve plus one, return plus one, be aggressive, look for shots, et cetera, to get in, et cetera. And even if you ask people nowadays, uh, the, the issue is. 
um, they're say, well, if you get a chance to get in or if you can get in, well, you, no, you have to create it. You have to be intentional about what you're doing. The, the Craig's point here is that for years there's been no stats to, and it's just been opinion. And now he has a lot of the, the, the numbers to back it up. So, Craig, mode equals one, and you said it's 30% of the time. So the next one is zero to four, 70% of the points are in zero to four. Explain that and how does that directly influence practice? Yeah, good point. So a quick history of stats in tennis. Before 1991, which is you know still fairly recent, there were no stats kept in our sport. So you look back into the 80s and the 70s and we see you know this golden age of tennis, no one was keeping stats. So from 91 it started. From 91 to about 2002, very primitive stats. First serve percentage, first serve points one, second serve points one, winners, unforced errors, all of these things. Um, but, but, but nothing very deep. And um, from about 2012 to, or 2002 to about 2015, it got better and better. At the Australian Open in 2015, IBM, at the very bottom of a stat sheet, of, of a match sheet, started collecting this data. And, and it said rally length 0 through 4, 5 through 8, and 9 plus. And, and I glanced at that. I'm like, that's interesting. I've never seen that. I've never thought of it like that. Let me dig in here. So I went to the tournament totals page where they add all the things up over the seven rounds and give you a, a total of, of what's happening um, for, for all 127 matches in the draw. They didn't total this up. So I went in and I did it manually. And at the 2015 Australian Open for the men, it was 70% of all points finished in the zero through four rally length. And the way IBM calculated is that the ball must land in for it to be, <clears throat> excuse me, to, for it to be calculated in the rally length. So that's why you have a, a, a zero, which is a double fault. There was no ball that went in the court. Um, and, and so I looked at that and then five through eight and nine plus. And the first thing I saw, or my first reaction was, wow, seven points out of 10 mean that each player only hits a maximum of two shots. And when we sit and watch matches, our eyes are naturally drawn to the more spectacular points, to the you know the running and the sliding and the defense and the longer rally. Those are the ones that stick in our mind. But the return error or the third plus one error, we, we, we very easily forget that. That goes in our short-term memory and it's gone, um, mainly because we think we should make a lot of balls. I mean, we, we have this notion that that's an unforced error and you know there's hardly anything that's an unforced error in our sport so the first thing was the organization of our sport was 70 percent in only only two shots for each player and and the long rallies um were only 10 percent so i looked at our practice court i'm like hang on a second we spend 90 percent of our time on the practice court in love with consistency, in love with shot tolerance, in love with grinding. And it only happens, those points only happen 10% of the time. So we need a restructure. We need to reduce the amount of consistency work so we can add in the amount of work that needs to be done at the start of the point. We're not going to go to the practice court and practice more. We need a reorganization. So when we see the massive importance that that the um, zero through four rally length, which I, I gave a nickname of first strike, we see the massive importance there. We must 
take note of that when we go to the practice court and work more <clears throat> on that to make sure that our practice court mirrors the reality of the match court. And folks, here's the practicality of this, because this is, um, for example, if you look at even past, and actually, I got a quick question. Have you ever thought yeah. about going back and looking, like, for example, Vic Braden, I know, I'm a good dear friend of mine, um, late Vic yeah. Braden. I mean, he videotaped everything. I mean, he, I don't know where that warehouse is or who's, uh, who the, uh, the curator is of that, but he has thousands yeah. of tapes. Has anybody thought of going back and actually doing some of the stats on those to see how it's evolved? That's a good question. I, I'd love to do that. If anybody out there knows where that archive is, I, I'd, I'd love to talk to them. Um, you know, one of the things that that makes it so difficult in tennis is, is is to understand when you look at other sports, you, let's say you have the NFL, you have one governing body, the NBA, one governing body, um, MLB, one governing body. When you look at tennis, it's so incredibly fragmented mm. and all the organizations don't really share with each other. Right. So you have... You have an ATP tour, you have a WTA tour, you have an ITF tour. Um, then you look at who's collecting the stats. You have IBM collecting, you have Infosys collecting, you have SAP collecting, you have Hawkeye collecting. There's another company that does in, in for the French Open that does it just there. So, right. you know, everybody hoards their own stuff. They don't share it. They make their own things up, which makes it very difficult in our sport to come up with a general set of statistics that, that really matter. And, you know, the, the unforced error is, is you know, we, we put such a premium on that, but that was just, you know, made up in the 70s so that a commentator could, could throw some stats in there and, and try and say, well, you know, he, he, these 23 unforced errors, he shouldn't have missed those, but it's simply not true. It's just predicated on time. There's eight different ways that, you know, when an error is made that you can look at it and say, well, it was one of these eight, but the unforced error is just predicated on one of those, which is time. So, right. you know, that's one of the very misleading stats in our sport that gets a lot of attention, but that means very little. Yeah, we'll get into that later because that's a great point. Um, yeah, this whole and getting back to the zero to four, and we're just getting off the starting blocks, folks, because here's the deal is if you're uh, most people now, when I've approach this in the past years past that or even now currently sometimes even with the very good you know players that are 200 itf and get into college tennis etc or higher you say look we gotta we gotta serve and we gotta look for that first ball and see if we can hurt the guy off the first ball and they go well no they feel rushed they feel panicked they feel like man i i can't uh, I, I need to get into a point for a while and the whole concept yeah. of they don't understand well if you know what if you do something long enough that will become your norm and that's what that and this is what you're suggesting that's out there and this is what people have to do and instead of you know back up and getting a 10 ball rally to wait for the ball they had two seven shots ago um, that's what we need to do. Along those zero to four, the seventy percent. It's interesting because you mentioned the mode is thirty, so that first serve and the big the serve is thirty uh, percent. Then that means three shot rallies are fifteen percent, and then two and four are twenty five percent. And is that would that be accurate? Yeah, exactly. Yep, yep. That, that's that's true. And I, I think you know when you look at the long rallies, you know we we think again that consistency is like. Be more consistent. It's better to be more consistent. So, you know, the work I do with Novak, um, you know, here's one stat is that what we don't understand until, you know, very recent, probably, you know, all the new stats started about 2015. You know, so we've only got 
you know, four years under our belt of, of looking at things in a different manner. But what we've discovered is that the longer the rally goes, mm-hmm. the more even the outcome becomes. Yes. It, it's, it's not that you get any big advantage by being more consistent. So let's look at Novak, for example. U.S. Open, uh, he wins it this year, he, or, well, last year in 2018, plays seven matches, wins seven matches, plays a lot of long, long grinding points, and you think, okay, you know, Novak's the litmus test here. If, if Novak can play a lot of long rallies, surely he is going to be the one guy on the planet that is going to forge a sizable advantage in the in the nine plus rally length. He won 132 points in nine plus at the 2018 U.S. Open. He lost 131. His advantage was one solitary point in long rallies. And if he can only forge a one shot advantage, what hope do the rest of us have? <laughs> well, and. Th- Folks, what he's saying here is, I mean, even as coaches, we'll sit there and go, you know what, the longer this rally goes, it goes to that guy's favor. Now, maybe at a certain level that is because some guys just aren't patient enough or some gals aren't patient enough. But uh, in other words, what you're saying is uh, part of your strategy shouldn't be, let's see how long of a rally I can get in here. It's, it's uh, you know, look for the advantage early on. But is that correct? Yeah, that, that's exactly right. You yeah. know, the, I also looked at um, – when when two players play each other, uh, and let's say we, we get the, the entire draw from the Australian Open, and we look at everybody that won their match, and the relationship is, did that player that won their match, whatever it is, six three six three six three, did they win more points than their opponent than the match loser in the zero through four and the five through eight and the nine plus, and over ninety percent of the time. At all four Grand Slams, the player that won the match won the zero through four rally length. There's, 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 a, there's a very definitive relationship between the two. But when you look at, at um, the long rally length of nine plus, it drops down to about 50-50. Two U.S. Opens combined, the, the match winner and the match loser were dead even on who who won more points in the nine plus rally length. So, um, you know, it's it, it, one of the things that that I throw out there to kind of you know, grab people's attention with this is, is say, you know, is consistency overrated? And the numbers clearly show that it is. Um, if, the, if you want to forge an advantage in winning and losing, it happens much more early in the first four shots, of which it's not about hitting winners early on. Right. It's about errors. So, again, last year at the U.S. Open, around 66% of all the uh, for the entire tournament, 66 percent were were errors. So normally it's around 70, 30, 70 percent errors, 30 percent winners. But it was 66 percent. I looked at um, uh, a few matches of the top players. The the error rate in the first four shots skyrockets up to 80 percent. So your advantage is early, and your advantage is not making an error the first two times you touch the ball. So this is something, you know, a really big takeaway for, for players at, at every level of the game. You're going to make errors. We know tennis is a sport of errors, but I don't care if you make an error on the fifth shot, the eighth shot, the 12th shot, or the 14th shot. It's going to happen at some stage. But if you can limit and practice and, and not make errors the first two times you touch the ball, 
you're going to create a massive advantage for yourself in the match. Yeah, that's and that's uh, this is uh, this is where we're going to get into serve plus one, return plus one, and your practices should be oriented around this. Um, so we talk about uh, you also mentioned about finding a way to get in, and we'll talk about those stats. Uh, find uh, folk. So uh, let's go do that. Serve plus one or return plus one. What would be some uh, um, some high uh, uh, wisdom behind that, and maybe some practical? You know, I could think of a bunch of drills that I use to do that, but. Uh, maybe relay to the audience uh, the wisdom behind serve plus one, return plus one, that mindset. Yeah, so, you know, a forehand looks different than a serve, and my thumb looks different than my finger. But when I'm doing the presentations, if you could just imagine this for a second, I'm holding my, my open hand up in front of you, and I take my thumb and my forefinger, and I tape them together. So the, the thumb and the first finger go together, and the thumb is the serve, and the finger is the, is the very first forehand. Now, all the other fingers, they're fine. They, they, they exist, you know, they're the third shot and the fourth shot and the fifth shot. But what I want you to think about is wrapping those two things together. And I really learned this from studying Roger and studying Rafa, mm-hmm. where these guys had such a massive thirst to hit a forehand as the first shot after the serve. So you, you know, and the big key is this, is that around 70% of all serves come back, of first serves and second serves combined. So, you know, you look at a guy like John Isner and you say, well, if he's got the biggest serve and, you know, why isn't John Isner ranked one in the world? Why isn't Ivo Karlovic ranked two in the world? Why isn't Kevin Anderson ranked three in the world? Why aren't these, you know, the serve is so dominant. Why, why don't they do so well? And the answer is when the serve comes back, which it does around 70% of the time. These guys aren't nearly as good. You know, I looked at John Isner recently. He had a losing record when the serve came back in play um, on his on his own service games. You, you mean the first so, serve? The first serve or second? It, 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 overall. Everything. Overall, okay. When, when, if you can get John Isner's serve back in the play, you've got, uh, you are above 50% on winning the point. Mm-hmm. So what serve plus one does is... If you can hit a forehand as that first shot after the serve, it's such a big advantage because, you know, the, the first serve is a dominant shot. The, the serve plus one forehand, you know, plays on that. You're probably on the baseline or inside the baseline. So you look at, um, you know, let's go back to 2012 U.S. Open. I looked at the the baseline points one for the entire tournament. So we've got 127, uh, we've got 128 players, um, only seven men had a winning record above 50% in baseline points one. Murray won it that year. He was right at 50% in baseline points one. So <clears throat> it usually tops out. The player that wins has the highest win percentage in baseline points at a slam tops out around 57%. But you look at Nadal, when he hits a surplus one forehand, he's at 64%. Now, you consider the average, the average for the entire tournament, uh, you know, and it's the same year after year. You know, Wimbledon has historical data all the way back to 91. For the guys, it's, they went around 47% on average of their baseline points. The women are about 48%. But Nadal, if he can hit a serve plus one forehand, he knocks that 48% average all the way up to 64%. So it's one of the, the greatest strategies to hold serve that, that there is. Hit a serve, look for a forehand, and it doesn't matter where the forehand is anywhere on the court. 
Juice, if you're right-handed, juice court, ad court, it doesn't matter. Look for, look for that dynamic forehand. And here's, here's the practical upshot, folks. For example, this is where as coaches um, and as players, look for a coach that helps you do this. But if you're a coach or even a parent and you coach your child or a parent looking for a coach, so foot speed, quickness. Because you work on those things, that doesn't that could be something off the court, but even on the court, you you develop your foot speed so you can get around and hit that forehand. Because what most people do is they hit the serve, they back up four or five feet, and then they go, oh, "I'll just hit a backhand." And the whole point is to be intentional about hitting a serve plus one on the forehand. On the return, um, return plus one, same mindset. Uh, what's common on the tour now, and a lot of people don't understand this, is a deep return to the middle. Uh, maybe discuss the whole idea of uh, return plus one. Yeah, and, and just one last stat on, yes. the, on, our, on our previous topic. Yes. Looking at, at forehand winners, um, a, a recent study I, I did from the U.S. Open, uh, I think we had around 300 forehand winners in, in the data set, and it was 59% of all forehand winners, and it was only right-handed players that I looked at, 59%. Was standing, the player was standing in the ad court when they hit the winner. So typically, or traditionally, we say, okay, let's get a good forehand, let's get a good backhand. And, you know, if you're standing in the middle of the court and you're right-handed, the ball comes to the juice court, you hit a forehand, the ball goes to the ad court, you hit a backhand. It's simply not true. Most forehand winners are struck with the, with the right-handed player standing in the ad court. So that's, that's certainly something for us to... To contemplate and go, wow! I need to definitely work on my fitness and definitely look and anticipate for that runaround forehand over there. And and so yeah, go ahead. Sorry, Craig. Go, go ahead. ahead. Yeah. So uh, for, well, I, for yeah, go ahead. Oh, well, I was just going to move on to the return. Yes. Point, but well, I was going to say if if uh, folks, if you divide your court up into four quadrants, you have an A, B, C, D, and then on the other side be A, B, C, D. What he's saying is. Uh, most players, 59% of the time, they're either in the C or D quadrant, and they're hitting a, they're hitting a, a winner from there. Or yeah, or would you call that a forcing shot as well, or an actual winner untouched? No, these are, these are actual winners. Okay. So the way, if you have a tennis court, the way you cut it up, let's say you're looking at the side closest to you, cut the juice court in half, and the outer quadrant, the outer half is A, the inside is B, then go to the ad court, cut that in half, the inner side is C, and the outside is D. So it's it's four even areas. You know, when we have the line down the middle, we have we have it naturally cut into two halves. But you just cut those halves. Now, also when you look to the other side down the far end of the court, it, it, it's it's reflecting. So on your side of the court, A is out wide in the juice. On the other side of the court, A is out wide in the juice. So they right. they go looking at the far side. It's the far left side that's A. And on our side, it's the, it's the closer right side. But what's interesting is that this shows the natural angles of our sport. A ball in A will typically go to A. A ball in B will go to B. A ball in C will go to D. And a ball in D will go to D. So, yes, they'll be hit to, you know, if you're in A, you, you can certainly hit to every other area. But that's where the primary uh, locations go to. They, they typically stay um, in, in the same quadrant. Yeah. So return plus one. A lot of people yes. try and go for that down the line. They try and go for the cross court angle. I don't think people realize that those are more uh, not the outliers per se, but the the majority is through the middle deep, push the player back. 
Yeah. So what, what typically happens? Let's start. Let's say we've got a juice court point. Um, you will, and the opponent's serving to you, and let's say they serve white. So you've got a defensive forehand return, almost always, and and you're returning out wide, and you start the rally. Almost always, you're going to be attacked through the ad court out wide to position D. So one of the things that that I do a lot of as a coach, I will have my player standing in the in the juice court returning. I will serve a first serve to them. Um, they'll return it and play defense and make that return deep down the middle of the court, and then. I feed immediately a ball out wide to D in the ad court, and they go D to D cross court with defense. So, you know, another good general rule in our sport is defense goes cross court. Anytime that things get difficult for you, take that ball cross court. Sometimes if you're, if you're on defense in the middle of the court, whether the balls come deep to you or hot, middle will go more middle. But if you're out wide, Go back cross-court. Don't be the player that's going down the line on defense because you are now giving up the cross-court angle for the next shot. Right. Another part of these stats, and we'll get into this, is um, uh, focus on the serve because if the mode is one, that means that serve has to be your best, one of your best shots, if not your best shot, the serve and return. And here's the point, the upshot, folks, is most of the time when I'm on the court, I, I spend a lot of time on the serve and return, but I'll look across courts and I'll see players for 20, 30, 40, I mean, an hour hitting ground strokes. And at the end, they kind of sprinkle in a couple serves, maybe yeah. a couple returns. Or here's the other scenario. Players will hit for a while and they say, hey, you want to play a set? And they get out there, they hit, you know, five-minute warm-up serves and returns, and then they play. And there's no focus uh, on the location. And Craig, you talk about four zones, and I think this is uh, really good. Yeah, e- exactly. I mean, the the traditional practice of 50 minutes of ground strokes, uh, or a starting practice of 100 balls cross court. Um, you know, the, the data is just blowing holes in all, in all of that. Uh, the winning happens early. The the the, the majority of points happen early, and and when you look at it, you know, hitting a serve, a first serve is, is, is the hardest. It has the most miles per hour of any shot in our sport. And when we're hitting the return, you know, it's, it, hitting returns is not the same as hitting ground strokes. You're in a different part of the court. You're, you're facing a different trajectory, a different speed. You're on defense a lot more. But when you're hitting ground strokes, you're in a, you know, you're not pressured with your court position. You're not really pressured by time. And, and you're, you're just more neutral. So don't think that hitting ground strokes equates to I'm also working on my return. Two very different things. And you really, you know, I, I think for a lot of time, particularly here in the United States, where players will go and they'll practice hard and they'll be running around the court and they'll be hitting a million balls and the coach will be, you know, feeding like crazy and the, the kid's running and, you know, he's touching the ball all the time and he's sweating, you know, sweating really well. And mom and dad are on the side of the court going, wow, he's, you know, this looks great. He's really improving. Then he goes and plays a match and can't win. And one of the, one of the best things I did in, in the last 12 months with my presentation is I talked about the three different rally lengths and I put a picture to those three different rally lengths. So I said, okay, here's nine plus. Here's the rally. And I put a picture of Tuscany. You know, these beautiful rolling hills. It's a gorgeous day. All the hills are green. And I'm like, when you go to the baseline and you're just rallying and practice, it's like <laughs> being in Tuscany. It's, you know, it's 80 degrees. The weather's perfect. 
you, you know, mum and dad are drinking a glass of Chianti on the side with some olive oil and some, you know, it, 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 and some bread. It's just beautiful. No one's unhappy on the practice court rallying back and forth. Everything's good. Um, the five to eight rally length in the middle, that's where we see patterns of play. We see smart players doing well. So I've got a picture of these two guys playing chess. That's what five to eight is. Then I go, all right, now let's go to the zero through four rally length. Serves a tough. Returns are tough. Serve plus one, return plus one, you're under pressure. There are more errors in this rally link than anything else. So I, I, got, I posted a picture of these, of these guys in Switzerland going up a glacier. And it's rough. It's cold. It's windy. Um, you know, it's a steep ascent. And, and I, I told them, it's like, the reason you can't win a match is you don't spend enough time in Switzerland. You, you, you spend all your time in Tuscany, but the deal is, Every single point in tennis starts in Switzerland, and you don't give it the respect that it's needed. You don't spend enough time serving. You don't spend enough time returning. You miss returns like crazy. You 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 miss the you know the, the, in the first four shots. This is the order of things that happen. Return error happens one. A serve plus one error happens next. A, a return plus one error happens next, and a double fold happens next. So you've got. Four chances for errors and four chances for winners. And the four errors all happen more than the four winners. Folks, uh, wrap your head around this uh, because I'm going to read a quote um, from Anders Ericsson. He's, uh, this is actually when we, t- uh, we won't have time to get to it too much today, but when we talk about deliberate practice, this is on a lot of the research um, that Duckworth does on grit and Ericsson has done for years on deliberate practice. Uh in order for to be an elite anybody, like a mathematician, chess player, these are world-class chess players, musicians, athletes, etc. Here's the point. The journey to truly superior performance is neither for the faint uh, of heart nor the impatient. The development of genuine expertise requires struggle, sacrifice, and honest, often painful assessment. There are no shortcuts. It will take you at least a decade to achieve expertise, and you will need to invest that time wisely. But here's the point. But engaging in deliberate practice that focuses on tasks beyond your current level of competence and comfort. And so when we're trying to get now a zero plus four, people are going to be uncomfortable. They're going to think, man, I'm making a bunch of errors. That's because you don't do it enough. Yeah, it's because you don't do it enough, number one. But also, yeah. errors are the reality of that rally line. Yes. So what you're, what you're trying to do is force the error from the opponent while not yielding the error yes. in your own game. Right. And this is why if you read his article on unforced errors, the the concept, you know, all people say come off the court, oh man, I missed a lot. Well did you miss a lot or did you allow him the opponent, him or her, to hit a shot such that you missed it? In other words, if you didn't do enough with the ball, they did more with it, which caused a forced error on your part. So a lot of people don't understand. Uh, they kind of view the error at, incorrectly, and that's part of your article on your website about that, right? Yeah, and it, it just kind of shows you the, the the new way of looking at at the term consistency. Is that you know the the, the old school way of, of talking about consistency? You know, one example is like going to get twenty balls cross court. And then make 20 balls in a row cross court and then do it again and then do it again and do it four times. The new way of consistency is make four balls in a row and go do it 20 times. Because making four balls in a row is really difficult. Really difficult. It doesn't happen a lot. 
even for the best players in the world. You know, Novak um, at the US Open, his rally lengths, that, you know, the top five rally lengths. And again, you walk away from Novak's matches going, look at these long rallies, look how amazing they are, look at, you know, look at how dominant he is and, 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 and how long all these rallies. It was, it was a one-shot rally first for the, out of the seven matches that won him the, the tournament. It was a one-shot rally, then a three-shot rally, then a five-shot rally, then a two-shot rally, and a four-shot rally. So if those are the five most common, most abundant rally lengths that Novak's playing, wouldn't it make sense to practice those more than all the other stuff? And, you know, different things happen is that when you have a four-shot rally, you know, on a practice call, we're like, okay, well, let me feed it out of the hand and then let's go back and forth in this in this neutral rally. That's not the reality of your match. We don't feed out of the hand to start the point. We start with a serve and we start with a return. So I'm not saying we must stop the, the baseline consistency work completely. I'm not saying that. That will still always be a part of our sport. But what I am saying, let the reality of the match data drive your practice, reduce the amount of time you are just mindlessly hitting, hitting forehands and backhands, and, and, and increase the serve proficiency, first serve and second serves. Um, work on the, the, the two-shot rally of where you hit a serve and then a serve plus one, and then the two-shot combination of a return and a return plus one. Those will win you, give you more bang for the buck and win you more matches if you can add them into your practice and not just bang balls all day long. Right. You talk about great players have few patterns, and you say seven, uh, seven to eight out of ten points are a primary pattern, and then two to three of ten points are secondary. Can you elaborate on that? And uh, I have a follow-up question. For example, let's say the longer the point gets, and you look at, let's say, Novak or somebody playing, they get in these long points. Do they make, from your analysis, what you look at, do they make a concerted concerted effort to get back into a pattern or do they just kind of take what they get and try and uh you know try and take advantage of the opponent or they during that long rally do they say okay man i got to get back to my pattern or do they just kind of uh uh take what they take what they get you know what you're trying to do is is you know again once you get to 10 shots 12 shots 14 shots both players are doing well both players have hit seven or eight or ten balls in a row in the court um, and, and it just becomes a very even playing field. So really what you want to try and do is, in a 5 through 8 rally, that's, again, that's the chess match, that's a pattern. Um, the number one pattern that I coach is called the 2-1 pattern, where you, you take the ball deep, uh, you're probably standing in C. Tennis is a C to C sport. More balls go from C and to C. And the reason is, C is slightly in the ad court. So what you're trying to do is get to your opponent's backhand, it was a, a right-handed player, get it to their backhand. The reason you don't go to D is there's just too much risk. Getting, you know, you're going to miss too much in the side, um, hit the ball into the, into the alley. So you go to C, and the first thing you want to do at the start of the 2-1 pattern is go deep to push them back, push them onto the back court so they can't go down the line and hurt you. When you're on defense with the backhand, you have to come back cross-court. So it starts in C, you push them back. You get a shorter ball as a result. Then you you move up to honor inside the baseline. Now we use a little bit more spin and move the opponent out to D, out wide. They must come back cross court on defense, and then you can finish to A. So it's a C D A pattern. And in that five to eight pattern, 
if the rally gets now into nine plus and 10 shots and 14 shots, you're just hitting the reset button. You're right. just going, okay, let me run this 2-1 or it's a 3-1 or it's a 4-1 and that's not working. So I'm going to try another pattern. I'm going to try another pattern. I may, you know, I, I may go cycle through two or three patterns, but, you know, rarely, and it will be sometimes, but rarely will you get into a long rally and just go, I don't care where I hit. I don't care what I do. I'm just not going to miss. That will be, you know, that will be an exception of the rule that will happen at times, but you are, you are constantly trying to put these patterns together and these chess moves that if I move them here, then I get this result, which I like. I think that's a really good point right there because a lot of players will just say, man, I just got to get the ball on the court. I'm not going to miss. If you don't have a plan, you know, uh, then you're not going to be able to, you know, you're just basically hoping the other guy misses because eventually somebody with the plan or the pattern is going to go after the ball. I got a quick question, though. Uh, uh, Borg, I, I remember reading one time, he said he didn't think a whole lot out there. I could see some people thinking, well, wait a minute, man, I'm just happy to get the ball over the court, let alone think about, you know, the different patterns. Yeah. But the point is you practice patterns. That's the whole point. You practice them, it becomes, the more you practice something and they happen at a faster rate, you can think and you can recover quicker. And people don't understand that. If you practice the patterns and, and then the thought process is almost natural, it's no big deal. Um Exactly it, right. Exactly right. Yeah. Um, so when you when you yeah, look at a, a guy like Bjorn, when, when he says that, um, you know, I've heard one quote from from Borg. I don't know if it's true or not, but you know, it, it, it's um, kind of a folklore in our sport. Is that you know somebody <laughs> asked Bjorn, said you know you know what what do you do in a match? What what's your strategy? And his answer was well, supposedly his answer was well, I hit the ball cross court, and then every now and then I hit it down the line, and. When you watch him, I've looked back at a bunch of his tapes. I mean, he's rarely making a bad decision. You know, these, these great thinkers, you know, it's based on where you're standing, based on where the opponent's standing, based on the opponent's strengths and weaknesses, there's really only one spot that you want to hit that ball. So that is your primary pattern that you're going to run seven or eight times out of ten. So, for example, you want to be hitting a forehand in C, deep, to, to see on the other side of the court. That's a primary pattern. Now, secondary patterns are, are your surprise plays and things you don't do a lot, such as a drop shot would be a, um, would be a secondary pattern. So we're not going to hit, you know, uh, 200 drop shots in a match. We are going to try and hit 200 forehands from C to C. So the secondary patterns kick in after you've conditioned your opponent's mind to expect the primary pattern. So it's exactly like, you know, Pavlovian theory. Mm -hmm. Pavlov's dog, ring the bell, feed the dog. Ring the bell, feed the dog. Ring the bell, the dog knows what's coming. This is exactly what you want to do to your opponent. Get a runaround forehand, deep to C, and do it again, and do it again. Do it six or seven times, so now you are conditioning your opponent's mind to expect that response, and as soon as you've got them expecting a response, then you can flick to the secondary pattern or switch to the, to the secondary pattern and, and you've probably got a, a quite an easy surprise winner. What players at lower levels do is they run way too many secondary patterns. It's almost like a 50-50. It's a I'll do this shot. and I'll do that and I'll do that. Yeah, but they're doing way too much. And, and ultimately, you know, they, they don't know what to stick to um, to win the match. So, right. you know, it even happens to the really good players that they'll start with a pattern. You'll see them like, hey, they're killing your point with it. And but they don't pay enough attention to it. Their mind wanders. They don't focus on, on why they're winning, and all of a sudden they're in a dogfight and they're not running any of the patterns that they ran earlier on when they were winning the match. So, um, you know, I think 
recreational players can take heart from that. I, you know, I, I think when when I work with players at the elite level of the game, their their understanding of strategy and tactics isn't as amazing as we think. You know, they 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 have an amazing ability to to have racket head speed and strike the ball, an amazing ability to move around a court, but you know, the ability to focus and concentrate and put patterns together is really not as, as, as amazing as the rest of their game. I think it would be safe to say, uh, you can maybe chime in on this, but he who controls the pattern controls the match. Absolutely. Or, you know, I would rather my player have a bad pattern than no pattern at all. <laughs> yeah, at least they have a, po- they have a purpose, yeah. Yeah, at least they have a purpose. And, and then sometimes players will come in and go, well, you know, the guy I'm playing just hits the ball everywhere. Everybody has favorite places to hit the ball. Everyone does. And that's your job in the warm-up in the first two games is to figure out where are the preferences, where are the favorite places on the court of the opponent so that you can either shut them down or not give them the ball so that they can run that run that pattern of play. Well, um, you know, yes, go ahead. Yo, I was going to say, this is related to the serve. You know, some people say, well, you know, what if I toss the ball here and I have a good kicker? Well, you know what? If you have a good kicker, they're not going to be able to do much about it. And then you get them there, you kind of isolate them there, then you slice it down the tee, you know, on the ad side. It, if you do something well enough, it doesn't matter. I remember one time at the Nationals, I was charting. I had a player um, who was, you know, playing his first round match, and I was wa- uh, or a second round match, I think. And I was I was charting his opponent uh, then the previous match, and I did a little scatter plot of every you know ground stroke he hit. This guy hit a passing yeah. shot every time cross court. It didn't matter, even if my guy knew yeah. it, it was going there, and the guy hit it so well that he still got beat. And my guy was a certain volleyer. So uh, you know, if it's, you hit your pattern awesome. well, you do it well. I couldn't agree more. Yeah. Um, this one, I think, is going to really rattle some cages, and it's uh, I'm, I, it's great to hear this data. Um, get get to net. Uh, you talked about the 2012 U.S. Open, and I'm sure you have other stats here. Um, the whole idea of uh, net points one at net versus points one on the baseline, and then usually the response is, "Well, yeah, if you get the net." Well, I think the the lesson is find a way to get the net. Be proactive, not reactive. But your stats on that—that that, they're pretty amazing. Yeah, the, the net is always being a, a wonderful place to be. Serving <laughs> and volleying has always been a wonderful place to be. So here's a little history on serving volley. And, and, you know, it's just another part of our sport that makes it so tough with stats is that Wimbledon is the only tournament in the world that you can go to and get historical data from the tournament. So every other tournament you look, you know, I, I go as either part of the media or the coaching team, um, you know, I was just at the U.S. Open. And I sit down at my media terminal and they provide, IBM provides all this data uh, uh, for, for the tournament where it's going. But I can't even click on, on the media term and go, all right, what was the score in last year's final? All of that historical data is kept, but it's hidden. So I take 3,000 screenshots um, mm. at, at each of these events right. to make sure that I, I have this data so I can you know, have it for future use. But at Wimbledon, they keep it. So let's go back to you know the, the early 90s when um, the data first started being kept. Serve and volley used to be over 50% of all of, of all service points played. And we look over the years, the progression it was over 50%, was even over 50% for second service. 
And then all of a sudden, it started dropping down to 40%, down to 30%, down to 20%, down to 10%, down to 6% and 5% and 4% of total points played uh, when players are serving. And, and the natural reaction is, serve and volley is dead. Serve and volley isn't happening anymore. So here's, here's the problem with that data, is that there's two columns, and we're only looking at one. One column is the amount or, or the rate that serve and volley happens in service games. And yes, it has fallen off a cliff. But there's a second column that we don't consider, we don't look at, and that is the win percentage. So when the serve and volley was done over 50%, the win percentage traditionally, and it's always right around at 65%. It'll, I've never seen serve and volley for a tournament, on average, be in the 50% range. It's always in the 60 to 70% range. So let's go with 65% as a good average over the year. So you serve and volley 50% of your points, you win 65% of those points. Then it drops to 40% and 30%, you still win 65%. Then it gets to 20% and 10% the guys are still winning 65%. It gets to 5%. You're still winning 65%. We have abandoned serve and volley because of, of some myth that we can't do it anymore, but serve and volley has never, ever abandoned us. It has always delivered the same win percentage, no matter if we do it a lot or no matter if we do it a little, and it's exactly the same with approaching. You come to the net, it's always around 65%. For men and women, and you know, you, you, I call it a 50-50 ball. You hit a good shot to your opponent, they get a little bit short, and you move up to that ball, and you're like, I've got two choices here. I could come to the net behind this ball, right. or I could stay back. The number one way to come to the net in today's game is with a forehand approach to the opponent's backhand. Now, when I did a study on Federer a couple of years ago at the US Open, when mm -hmm. he approached with a forehand, it didn't matter where it went, when he approached with a forehand, he won 76% of his approach points. When he approached with a backhand, he won 53%. So there's a huge difference with how you come to the net. You want to come in with a forehand. You want to rush a backhand. Um, hopefully, you've, you're coming in behind the backhand as well. You get to the backhand, and they're coming out of that backhand corner, and you make them stop and go back. So, you know, I'm always coaching players um, to, to go to the net. I'm always... You know, showing them the stats, and you know, with all of these these things, you got the, the the days of having an opinion and going, well, I don't think. As soon as you listen to a discussion and somebody starts with, well, my opinion is, or I don't think, you're you're, you're pre 1991. You're not looking at the data of the match. You're looking at your opinion and your feelings, and and sometimes you know how how you think it should be rather than a reality of how it, how it is. But if I go to all the data and I see that getting to the net is terrible, I'm, I'm, I'm going to tell people to say that. I don't care what the strategy is. I care about winning. So yeah. I look at the data and say, you know, what are good ways to win points? Um, you know, Novak won 75% of all of his um, approach shots at the U.S. Open. He came to the net 150 times. I mean, Novak's not... A grinder, he's not a baseline player. He's, he's, he's taking opportunities to come forward, and he has a great win percentage with that. So I highly encourage. And, and, and one last stat with that that, yeah. that I just remembered. Remember that 2012 US Open where I saw there was only seven men in the entire tournament right. 
that had a winning percentage from the baseline. There were only seven men for the entire tournament that had a losing percentage approaching. Yeah, I mean that that's that's a stark uh, stark contrast. And and the, here here's here's the upshot. And I've got a couple more questions before we run out of time. But here's the upshot of that. People will say, well, I mean, first of all, some people don't have the speed to get to net, or maybe the they don't volley well enough. That's because they spend too much time on the baseline. So if you get your volleys set up, then you can win from the net. The second thing is. Approach shots a lot of times are predictable. The person hits a short ball, they go, oh, they're coming in, so they're ready. You know, it's like a dog in the corner. They're ready to attack. Well, how about come in when they're not ready? Like, for example, you develop a slice or you get them out wide and the person's stretching for the ball and you come rushing in behind it and pick it out three-quarter court maybe. So you got to work on your three-quarter court, your half-court volley. I mean, so these are these are the issues that people don't understand. Is they're it's they're, it's too dichotomized. They're thinking, well, baseline volley, baseline volley. No, it's you got to work on a better transition game. Yeah, 2018 U.S. Open men round of 16 to the final. I charted every single approach point um, in in all of those matches. 56 percent of the time somebody came to the net they did not have to hit a volley it was either an approach winner or which which was the smaller amount or it was a passing shot error error yeah so if you if you, if you tell me you can't volley i say it doesn't matter you know, <laughs> you look at, right. the other guy that stood out to me was davidenko where he was a you know phenomenal player on the baseline and he would rush the net he hardly ever hit a volley past the service line. He'd just run in as quick as he can, close the net tight, and just hit these little little dink volleys um, that, that just carve players up. So, you know, I would suggest go to the practice court, uh, work on your volley technique, work on your fundamental grip, work on the opposite hand up on the throat to, to click that grip. I mean, one of the most important things with volleys is to make sure that racket face is open so you're not having to scoop it and maneuver it and twist it as you're hitting the volley because your grip is wrong. Right. Get the continental grip and, and, and keep things super simple. You know, hardly move the racket. When you're running in for a volley, you know, the, the shorter you can be with the racket, the better. You have a couple points here, and we'll just get it real quick. You say there's uh, you ten there's ten keys in, in winning, et cetera. One of them is, and I, I, I just want to ask the question, you make the point, you say, yeah. is it more important to hit the ball where you want to hit it or more important to hit where my opponent doesn't like it? Yeah, uh, it's the second one. It, you know, nine times out of ten, it, when you go to the court, it's not about you. Um, you know, there's, you, you think when you go to the court also that you've only got one opponent, the person standing on the other side of the court. You know, there's several opponents that you have in a match. There's the guy on the other side of the court. There's the scoreboard that can pressure you. Um, there's the natural elements. You know, some people hate playing in the wind or it's too sunny or it's too hot. Um, it could be the crowd, um, it, 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 all the external things. But, you know, when you look to the other side of the court, think of it like this, for, for all the people that are listening. Think back to the last 12 months of matches that you've played. Let's say you've played 50 matches. How many times have you walked off the court and said, Wow, did you see that? My forehand was really on today. My backhand was great. I served well. I didn't feel nervous. I was calm. I was athletic. I was awesome today. Most players will say either, well, I, I don't even remember a match like that, or it'll be like one or two times. Mm -hmm. You know, I've never heard anybody when I've asked that question say more than five times, 
in the last 12 months. So let's, let's say it is five. Five out of 50. So the other 45 times that you play a match, your A game is not turning up. And, you know, too often we walk up to say, I didn't play great. You have an opponent that their job is to make you not play great. They're constantly right. trying to, to, to put you into difficult situations on the court. Um, you know, so the reality is you, are, you, you don't expect to play great in a match, but what your number one job is to make your opponent tap out. Make them tap out mentally. You know, make it difficult for them. Make it look too big of a mountain for them to climb. You know, when was the last time you watched a match and, and you know, both players were giving absolute 100% of effort right to the finish line? Most matches, at some stage, a player gives up. And it's subtly, sometimes they start going for way more winners than they should. They, you know, the risk on their shot goes up. But, you know, in essence, they're saying, I really can't win. I'm just going to... I'm either going to give 80% of effort or 90% of effort. I'm, I'm going to go for a spectacular shot, and if they go in, great. And if they don't, I'm not going to win the match anyway. You just so got, you just got to find effect. their tipping point. Exactly. Find their tipping point and break them. Most, you know, make them tap out and, and put the opponent first. Give them a very healthy dose of what they don't like to do. Yeah, most players, they're, they're thinking they're playing to a standard. It's like, well, okay, this is if I play well, this is what happens. No, what you you just need to take, it's, I, I call it, you go to the, you, whatever girl you brought to the dance, that's who you dance with. And as, if you show up on the court and you had a great warm-up and all of a sudden your forehand doesn't go in, use your backhand then, use a slice. Find some way to get it to their weakest spot, and that's what you're saying. Yeah. Um, exactly. You mentioned depth. You give eight ways to force errors, and you say the number one thing is depth. And I think a lot of times when people practice, that's not what they're thinking. Because uh, I actually have yeah. a little – I have a thing where I, I have people turn around the other side and they can't look at the court. I put down markers six feet from the baseline. I have them turn around and say, how far is that from the baseline? Most of them are off by at least three feet. And most people's oh. perception of what depth is is incorrect. And so if you – and that's just six feet. How about three feet? And uh, depth is where you get all the errors, and you've made uh, this point. Yeah, so you, you look at – um, your opponent has made an error and made a backhand error. So there's essentially eight ways you can do it. So you, you, you cut the court up and turn the court into a three-dimensional cube. So the first is consistency. You know, uh, there's a lot of players out there, they'll make the first backhand or the second backhand, but the third or fourth, that's where it breaks down. So consistency will force an error. And then you go direction, left and right, depth, really deep and really short, and height. Get the ball low or get the ball up high. Then you go to the ball, which is spin and power, the two qualities there. And the last two are court position, where you stand, uh, forces an error, stepping in on a second serve return, coming to the net and shrinking the court visually. And lastly is the time you give them to prepare. Rushing a player is a very big deal. So out of those eight, hit the ball deep. That will get you, you know, right. that will get, that will extract the most errors. And, and at the start of a point, most players will look to the other side of the court and say, well, I see my opponent standing in the middle of the court. I've, in order to attack them, I've got to hit the ball left, I've got to hit the ball right. What you want to do at the start of the point is hit the ball deep. Push them back to a part of the court where they can't hurt you. So at the beginning of a point, death trumps direction. As the point develops, as your court position moves up, as you get inside the baseline, then you can use all the direction you want. But you are far better off playing deeper to see through the middle of the court, the opponent's backhand to start a point and trying to attack them wide. 
Yeah, and if you hit that D, and that's what you're saying, if you hit the D or the A, if you're on the deuce court and you hit the A, you make an error. You are on the ad court, you hit the D, you make an error, and that's why you're going deep through C. Exactly. Um, and I would say a court position helps because if you're inside, a lot of players, they hit and they go, I'm going to hit a deep ball, but they're eight feet behind the baseline or six feet behind the baseline. But if the closer you are into the into the baseline, the easier it is to hit a deep ball, the easier it is to attack the next one. And I don't think a lot of people, yeah. you know, they're just, they're comfortable hanging out in the baseline pretty far back. Yeah, exactly. They I, see I, Nadal I, 15 it, feet it, behind. They go, well, it must be okay. Yeah. What, what's interesting with, with Nadal is I've, I've, on my Twitter account, I've, I've put out a lot of pictures of this, of this sequence. Um, so, I, you know, I'm sitting at, at Roland Garros in the, in the press section and Rafa or Monte Carlo, I think I, I did a bunch of these, um, where Rafa is literally back right next to the linesman. You know, he's almost like, linesman, get out of the way, move further back. He's so far back. But then I take, so I take a, a, a photo of, of him making contact with the return. Then I take a photo of Rafa's next shot, and he's almost up around the baseline. And I take a photo of the next shot, and he's inside the baseline. And I take the fourth shot, and he's at the net. So what he's done, you know, which is, which is it works so well for him, is he backs way up, to return serve, the guy is insanely strong. You know, his arms and his right. legs and his, his torso, that he can be so far back and still get the ball deep. He can still hit it that high. Most players can't. Most players can't move that far back and then drive that ball that deep in the court. So what he's trying to do is go, okay, I can get anything from way back here, then I can quickly move up and, and resume the point. All he's doing with that strategy is trying to negate the serve as much as he possibly can. Two keys there. Really strong, probably a lot of loose string bed tension. And then secondly, he's quick. <laughs> so you can go back yeah. and forth and you can do that. You know, if you're not quick and if you're not strong, don't hang back. You don't have a chance. <laughs> exactly. And, and as soon as he hits that return, he's, he's hungry to get up to the baseline. And it, it is a big deal, whereas most players will think, well, I, I see him back and he must be back there all the time, and he's not. Yeah. I know your time's valuable. I've got one more question if you got time. Uh, sure. Championship characteristics of all your time coaching, all your time looking at the best players in the world, best juniors in the world, et cetera, what would you consider maybe the top five championship characteristics? And that can be mental, emotional, tactical, technical, whatever. whatever what are those characteristics, you think? Yeah, I think, um, you know, the concentration – is the ability to stay focused for a long period of time is a really big deal. So I, I see a lot of players, you know, the average classroom uh, or the average class is about 50 minutes long because kids mentally leave it like that, but not many matches are 50 minutes long. You know, you go an hour and a half and you get to that 50-minute, you know, mm -hmm. point and it's like, okay, I, I, just, I, I just can't keep my focus that long. That long. You know, Nadal was one of the greatest ever at, at, at not at not losing his focus and losing his concentration. So, you know, players that can stay in the moment, and, and you do that actually by taking a lot of little mental timeouts uh, between the points where you're not thinking of the past, you're not thinking of the future, you're just calming things down so that it, it, it keeps your mind fresh longer in the match. Um, you know, I, I see a lot of players who can hit a great ball, but the ability... To stay focused for a longer period of time is, is, is um, you know, it, you, you tap out and you're done. Okay. That, that's a big deal. Great. Um, 
Second, second one is the ability uh, to handle adversity. You know, every match that you play is going to have some form of adversity. And, you know, a, a good way to describe it is like a storm cloud. Don't ever think that you're going to play a tennis match and that there's not going to be a storm cloud that rolls in. You don't know if it's going to be in the first game, in the middle of the match, or at the end of the match. But when the storm cloud rolls in, you control how big it's going to be and you control how long it's going to it's going to um, stay there for. So, you know, the, the ability to, to understand, you know, one of the, the, the big things that I teach players at the start is that, um, you know, the number one player in the world each year only wins around 55% of their points, which means a great day at the office is losing 45% of your points. But these players lose a point and they get on this roller coaster. I won the point, I'm happy. And I lost the point, I'm sad. I should never lose points. And it's kind of... Um, you know, built in as like, well, you know, we have this unforced error, which naturally says, well, we shouldn't make errors. We make errors go war in our sport. We overdose on consistency on the practice court, and we are the furthest thing from consistent once the match starts. So the ability to handle adversity and uh, absorb, um, you know, the, the, the purple patches from the opponent when they do, when they do well, which, you know, which is difficult to sustain. Is is a really big deal. Um, I, I, you know, the other thing is when you look at weapons, it, you you don't have to be good at everything, but you've got to be good at something. So the two biggest weapons in our sport are the serve and the forehand. You know, so those are naturally what you're going to work on. You know, there's there's one ten year old boy that I work on work with here in Austin, and we spend by far the majority of our time getting clean, simple repeatable, injury-free technique with his serve and his forehand. We include the tactics. With that, we do serve plus one forehand. Um, so we, we're bringing both of those things together. I, I infuse the the strategy with with the technique. You know, a lot of times I'm working on his technique in position C, having him headed to position C, because that's where he's going to be most of the time anyway. Um, but, you know, you've got to have a weapon. And, and understanding what you are. Early on when I worked with Kevin Anderson, um, when he was outside the top 150, taking him um, into the top 50, Louis Vossel was his touring coach at the time, and I assisted with a lot of video work and, and analysis. You know, when we first started with Kevin, he, he stood so far behind the baseline. Kevin thought he was a grinder. You know, I remember saying to Kevin, you're six foot nine from South Africa. <laughs> you play tennis like you're five foot nine from Bolivia. Right, exactly. And... He had no idea what his strengths were, which was serving, returning, getting to the net. That was it. So I, I think knowing your strengths and, and having those strengths, you look at a guy like Leighton Hewitt, not a great serve, not a great forehand, but he redlined it in so many other areas and figured out where he could, you know, where he could maximize his talents to become number one in the world. So, you know, it doesn't really matter what it is, but know what it is and just nail that as, as, as much as you can. Um, you know, another thing, I think that's three. And another two things that, are, that I think are very critical is that, that aren't talked about a lot is it's just putting together a, a good schedule. You know, I see so many players fall or, or fail with their tennis because their schedule is incorrect. You know, I, I think an ideal schedule is winning seven out of ten matches you play. And out of those seven, you're playing three guys that you're obviously better than and you win all three matches. gives you a lot of confidence. You play four guys that you're dead even with, and you win three and lose one. So you've got four um, 
You've got the three matches there, and you three matches against the players that you're obviously better than. You have three wins against the people that are at your level, and now you play three matches against people that are better than you, and you win one of those. Yeah, you so there's your yeah. seven wins. Great, yeah. Um, you know, too many players. You know, it's like okay, I'm going to go play the tour, and I'm going to I'm going to go play futures or challenges, and it's just above your level, and you go one and nine or zero oh and ten, and you're just shattered. You know, it just kills you that you can't win matches. So getting a good schedule and, and making sure you've got some wins, making sure you're playing some people that are below you and above you, but most of the time that you're playing at your level, um, really, really helps. And then I, I think there's a fifth one that's looking at a longevity standpoint. Um, you know, I remember talking to a, a good junior once and, and saying, okay, you know, let, let's say you, you, you end up at the top 50 in the world. So, you know, you're 16 at the moment. You're going to play two more years of, of juniors. You're going to play four years of college tennis. That's six. So you're going to come out maybe when you're 21. And then, you know, in that year when you're 21, you're going to go from 1,000 to 500. When you're 22, you're going to go 500 to 250. When you're 23, you go 250 to 125. When you're 24, you go 125 to 75. When you're 25, you go you finally reach the top 50 when you're 25 and you're 16 now. So I'm like, that's a nine year process. And that's normal. That, that, that's actually, you, you, that's a really nice, good pathway, but it's going to take you nine years to get there. And, you know, they, they think it was like, wow, that's a long time. <laughs> that, that's, that's just how the sport's organized. Right. You know, there's very, very few people that make these, these super quick jumps. You know, Alexander Zverev made a super quick jump. But there's a lot of guys that, you know, if you can kind of halve your ranking each year, that's a good year at the office. Um, I remember looking at Steve Johnson. I think, you know, that's exactly what Steve Johnson did, um, you know, with, with his career of juniors to, to playing four years at USC and then going on the pro tour and, you know, cracking, you know, I think made, made the top 30. Yeah. You know, it, it takes mm-hmm. time. Be patient. It takes time. Really good advice. Well, folks, uh, a lot of info, probably some uh, some uh, worldviews shattered, some people going, oh, my gosh, I'm rattled when I get back on the court. i got to change what I'm doing. Take one thing and work on it, uh, maybe one concept that uh, Craig talked about. Um, in general, we have to focus more on our serve plus one, return uh, plus one. The, the first four shots are really important, so work on what you're doing with that. Um, I'd like to uh, leave uh, with a quote uh, that I often uh, uh, mention to my players, but is your normal inspiring? If somebody walks out on the court and they're watching you train and you go out there and you take the stuff that Craig's been talking about and you're training and you're working hard and people are watching, are they inspired? Just think about that and see how that uh, affects your training. You've been listening to the Coach Steve Clark PhD show with Craig O'Shaughnessy, founder of BrainGameTennis.com. Uh, go on to his website and subscribe and get a bunch of information, and it's, it's fantastic stuff. He has charts, videos, and all that. Um, 
You can also uh, go onto my website uh, for this podcast uh, uh, on the on the page. It has a picture of a of an actual uh, court that he divides the quadrant, so you get an idea of what he was talking about, and then you can make your own. But you go to his website and you uh, subscribe, and you get all that information. Um, you'll be able to watch tennis a whole different uh, perspective if you're a fan and if you're a player. Um, and or a parent helping um, helping a student and a, a player come through the ranks, you'll have a different perspective when you're watching and helping them. Uh, you can email me at uh, steve at coachsteveclarkphd.com with any questions or comments, um, and I can actually uh, even uh, probably pass those along to Craig, and he'll get back to us, and I can put those up on the website. So thanks again, and remember, uh, the introduction to the show is by Wayne Bryan, and Mike and Bob Bryan provide the music. Thanks again for tuning in, and until next time, let it rip. Let it rip.